Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to today's lecture on Russia, Latin America, and Caribbean relations in 2017. Um, I think most of y'all know who we are, but for those of you who don't, um, we are a master's uh, graduate school of national security and national affairs. Um, we offer five master's degree programs and 17 graduate certificate programs. Um, today, we're very pleased to welcome one of our alumni, Alejandro Sanchez. Um, I'm sure he has a great presentation for you all. Um, Alejandro is an international affairs analyst who focuses on geopolitical and defense issues in the Western Hemisphere. Um, he's a member of the Forum on Arms Trade. He's a regular contributor to IHS Jane's Defense Weekly, the Center for International Maritime Security, and living in Peru. Um, his analyses have appeared in journals including Small Wars and Insurgencies, Defense Studies, the Journal of Slavic Military Studies, European Security, um, studies in Conflicts and Terrorism and Perspectives. Um, he received his BA from Yersinus College, Yersinus uh, College, excuse me, um, his MA from American University, uh, his Certificate on Caribbean Defense and Security from the National Defense University here in Washington, D.C., and his Certificate on International Politics from the Institute of World Politics. So, without further ado. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here today. Relations between Latin the Russian Federation and Latin American Caribbean is a fascinating topic, and I thank the Institute of War Politics for the opportunity to present my research to you. Before I begin, I want to say two things. First, since we're on the record, I will stress that all points of view that I present here are mine and mine alone. I don't necessarily present those of any organizations I'm affiliated with. Second, I am Peruvian, which means that I've been blessed and cursed with a very distinctive accent. In other words, if you don't understand something that I say, please ask me to repeat myself at the end of my presentation. I promise I will not be offended. Now, there we go. So here's my game plan for today. I'm going to divide my presentation in five topics, in five issues, sections. Russian initial suspects, meaning the context Moscow has the closest ties with nowadays, namely Bolivia, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Russian, the rest of Latin America, and the Caribbean. In other words, every country other besides the aforementioned states. Then I will address the Russian media in Latin America, namely Sputnik and RT. The fourth session is What Does Russia Want? in which I will try to guess Russian foreign policy and predicting the future. Also, difficult tasks, I will attempt to give you some educated guesses. You'll notice from the title of my presentation that I'm not going to discuss the history of, of Russian Latin American relations, namely during the Soviet Union time. That's because I want to focus on what's going on right now. Maybe going back as, maybe going back as far back as maybe a few months or last year, but nothing more than that. My goal is to talk for maybe 35 to 40 minutes, so we can have, we can have some time for discussion, and also I want to hear some of your thoughts. So, let's start with the Russian subjects. What's going on these days between, regarding Bolivia-Russia relations? One is the development of Curtis Oaks. When the fourth session of the Commission on Technical Military Cooperation took place in Moscow. During this meeting, the Bolivian government announced that it is interested in having some military personnel receive training by the Russian Defense Ministry. So it's unclear how many personnel we're talking about and what kind of training. To sign a defense analyst, I'm always thinking about potential weapon sales between these two governments. The renowned company James Defense, which I write for, as was previously mentioned, has reported that the commander of the Bolivian army has recommended the purchase of Jack 130 light attack aircraft for the Bolivian government for the, to replace some of the Bolivian Air Force's Lockheed T-33s. Also noteworthy is the fact that Gazprom is present in Bolivia. 
dating back to a 2007 memorandum of understanding between the company and the Bolivian state-owned petroleum company, Yacimiento Petrolíferos Fiscales Bolivianos. According to Gazprom, in the Incahuasi field started production in 2016, while drilling in the acero block is scheduled for 2018. Additionally, Gazprom expands operations in Bolivia even further, as is interested in drilling for hydrocarbons in Guayaquil and La Ceiba. Finally, just as past September 19, the Bolivian Nuclear Energy Agency, AVEN, and the Russian energy company, Rosatom, signed a contract for a nuclear research and technology center that will be located in the Bolivian city of El Paso. And on the screen, you can see a very small picture of the ceremony when it was signed. According to Rosatom, the NRTC will comprise a water-cooled research reactor, a multi-purpose experimental gamma installation center, engineering facilities, and various laboratories. It will cost more than $300 million and will be commissioned by 2019. Uh, now it's time for Cuba. As we all know, if I was giving this presentation in the 1980s, 70s, or even 60s, I would need an hour just to talk about this relationship. But while Moscow is not supporting the Korean economy one state, there have been some interesting developments worth mentioning. The big initiative is that Russia's state-owned oil company Rosneft has reportedly shipped 249,000 barrels of crude oil to Cuba a few months ago, in May, I believe. It's unclear for how long Russia will supply Cuba with oil, but as Venezuela's oil crisis continues, Havana is naturally looking for oil suppliers. Additionally, just a few weeks ago, in mid-September, Moscow and Havana held the seventh round of the Russia-Cuban Intergovernmental Commission for Economic, Commercial, and Technical Cooperation. And you can see why I didn't put the whole name of the thing in the graph, because I won't have space for it. Uh, the commission discussed issues of civilian aeronautics, metallurgy, chemical industry, and transportation. I haven't been able to find exact information about what the agreement itself includes, but there was mention in a Cuban news site about a fertilizer company located in Nuevitas that is in need of upgrades. So I'm curious if Moscow will help the Cuban government upgrade this uh, project. Additionally, Cuba continues to host Russian government officials. A few weeks ago, Sergei, and I'm going to butcher this name, Selesniak, Deputy Chairman of the State Duma, visited Havana and met with Vice President Jose Ramon Machado Ventura. The name Sergei Selesniak may sound familiar to you because he is a part of President Putin's inner circle. In fact, he was one of the persons that were sanctioned by the US government in 2014 due to Russia's involvement in the Ukraine crisis. So it is interesting that this senior officials travel to Havana to meet with the Cuban High Command, particularly as Cuban U.S. relations sour, and we will discuss more of that later. Finally, I want to say a word about tourism to Cuba. Cuba has been a favorite destination of Russian citizens for a long, long time, and it seems like the number of Russians traveling to the Korean island is on the rise. The problem is, I am unsure how many people are going there. According to Prensa Latina, Cuban authorities have stated that already 70,000 Russians have gone to Cuba so far this year. The problem, as you can see from the graph, is that this contradicts another number provided by the Moscow news agency Russia Beyond the Headlines, which claims that 52,000 Russians have been secured so far in 2017. So, let's go now to the Central American nation of Nicaragua. I think there's a Nicaraguan expert around here. As you know, President Daniel Ortega the Soviet Union's ally during the Cold War returned to power in 2007, 2007 I'm sorry, and was re-elected once again last year. During his second period as head of state, there have been some interesting security-related initiatives that have brought Managua and Moscow closer once again. 
For example, Moscow has sold 50 T-72 main ballot tanks in Nicaragua, which were delivered last year and displayed during a military parade. The fleet of tanks costs around $80 million. Apart from weapon sales, bilateral security relations also involve military training. As in 2013, Russia opened a military training center called Marshal Georgi Konstantinovich Sukhov, named after the Soviet Union's hero during the Great Patriotic War. The center is located in the headquarters of the Nicaraguan Army's Mechanized Infantry. You can see a photo of the ceremony of the opening ceremony in 2013 over there at the top of the screen. Additionally, Nicaragua hosts a navigation, a satellite navigation tracking station, part of Russia's GLONASS satellite system. The center was inaugurated this past April. And you can see a photo of it on the right side. As you can see, it's not a massive complex compared to some, um, some gossip that you may hear some rumors. It's really just a couple of small buildings. But it's nevertheless important for Russia's space program and it cements Russian Nicaraguan relations even more. Finally, it's worth noting that the pieces continue to occur. The most recent one took place in early September, when the aforementioned member of the State Duma, Sergei Slesniak, visited Nicaragua and made with Gustavo Porras, president of, Nicar of Nicaragua's National Assembly. As a final fact, a press release of dated uh, in early September mentioned that the Nicaraguan National Assembly will send a delegation to St. Petersburg to attend a meeting of the Inter-Parliamentary Union. This conference will take place this weekend, actually, from October 14 to 18, which goes to show how I have to constantly update this presentation as new, um, new events develop, new things occur. And the usual final suspect that we'll talk about is Venezuela. We could easily fill an entire library of books that discuss the rise of Chavism in Venezuela, as well as the Russia-Venezuela alliance with the late President Hugo Chavez and now with President Nicolás Maduro. To reiterate, I am not going to discuss all of Venezuela's Russia's relations, I'm going to focus on recent events. For example, in February, Venezuela's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Desi Rodriguez, met with their Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. The meeting was important as Russian officials declared his government's full support for the Maduro regime. And also said, and I'm posting the full quote here, foreign pressure is unacceptable. It is important to avoid artificially fueled detentions and protests which violate Venezuela's laws and may lead to dangerous consequences for both Venezuela and its neighboring countries. Indeed, Venezuela's government is one of allies, as even other South American nations have critiqued the Maduro regime and how the Venezuelan leader has handled the ongoing political and economic crisis. Hence, diplomatic support for the from from the Russian government is critical nowadays. Additionally, the Venezuelan government and its old company PDVSA are relying on the Russian regime and in particular the energy company Rosneft to stay afloat. An article in Novos published by the Reuters explains how, and I quote, Rosneft delivered, Rosneft delivered Venezuela's state-owned firm more than $1 billion in April alone in exchange for a promise of all shipments later. On at least two occasions, the Venezuelan government has used Russian cash to avoid imminent defaults and payment to bondholders. Rosneft I'm sorry, has also positioned itself as a middleman in sales of Venezuelan oil to customers worldwide. Okay. Another major initiative that's going on right now is wheat. Namely, Russia has sent tons of wheat to Venezuela so the government can feed its population. This is a photo shared by Carlos Faria, the Venezuelan ambassador to Russia. It reads that this is the first cargo ship transporting wheat that has arrived to Venezuela. Meanwhile, the Venezuelan and Russian media have reported that each month Russia will send up to 60,000 tons of wheat to the South American state. 
Caracas announced that bakers across the country will receive the Russian wheat, and that 90% of it will be used to bake bread, while the other 10% will be used for sweets and sort. The problem is that while well, I believe that the first cargo vessel arrived, since I've seen enough footage of it, I have not heard of a second ship arriving in September or one in October so far. Unfortunately, the Venezuelan government's tendency towards lack of transparency doesn't help me find more information about this important initiative. I also want to mention that a recent report dated October 2nd by the Russian news agency Sputnik quotes Russian Minister of Finance Anto Silanov, who said that the, that the restructuring of Venezuela's debt to Russia should be completed by the end of the year. To this point, I am unsure how much money Venezuela owes Russia, as the fact that Venezuela is using oil to pay for some of the debt makes things even more confusing, and I have been unable to find a number that I am comfortable giving to you. As for relations at the executive level, just last week, President Maduro and President Putin met in Moscow. The two discussed the situation in Venezuela, Venezuelan oil, etc. But I want to bring to attention this quote. President Maduro, uh, and, and I quote, President Maduro also said he expected to discuss arms and express his confidence that, even if we do not ask, we will be giving even more support to boost Venezuela's defense capacity and sovereignty. How, how times change, huh? A decade ago, when the late Hugo Chavez was around, Venezuela spent billions of dollars for any problem to acquire Russian weapons. And now, President Maduro hopes that the friendship between uh, that friendship and a similar ideology will ensure that Russia will provide more military equipment. And we can certainly talk more about that in the, during the discussion section. Okay. So now we have talked about Russia's close friends in the Western Hemisphere, what's going on with the rest of the region. Rather than discussing country by country, I'm going to divide the next sections by subject, like the trade and defense. In fact, when it comes to trade, and this is kind of important, Latin America has actually profited from the sanctions the US and Europe have placed on Russia, as it has forced Moscow to look for oil suppliers uh, for food products. Hence, it is no surprise that many Latin American food products are to be found in Russian markets nowadays, with suppliers looking to increase their exports even more. One good example of this interest and success occurred in mid-September, when Moscow hosted a World Food Fair. There were delegations from around 60 countries, including Latin America, reportedly Cuba, I'm sorry, Ecuador and Colombia. According to the Ecuadorian media, which covered this event, Ecuador has cornered up to 94% of the Russian market when it comes to plantains or bananas, and that Russia is the destination of up to 24% of the Ecuadorian plantains. As for Chile, the Russian news agency Sputnik reported that bilateral trade reached $513 million in 2016, an increase from previous years, with food products and wine, and wine being Chile's main exports. Now that the Trans-Pacific Partnership meet today in the water, it seems likely that Chile is looking for new partners for its products, for its products, such as Russia and the Arab world. In fact, in July, a Chilean delegation that consisted of government representatives and the private sector visited Moscow with local and met with local officials and representatives from the, e the Eurasian Economic Union, whose members are Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Armenia. And you can see a photo of the meeting over there. The goal, as you can imagine, is to further open the Russian and, and EEU market for Chilean products. Also this year, in April, the sixth intergovernmental commission between Russia and Colombia took place in Bogota. Trade between the two countries currently at a meager $300 million, but there seems to be a strong interest to increase trade relations. Some of the pros and services that were mentioned 
that name that could be used to promote relations are tourism from Russia to Colombia, seafood and machine parts, where Russia could export medicine, particularly vaccines, wheat and IT. As a final example, Mexican President Peña Nieto may have President Putin in September as, as a, uh, on the sidelines of the Greek summit in China. The Mexican media highlighted the ongoing cooperation between the two countries, particularly regarding energy. In fact, the Russian company Lukoil won a coveted contract this past June, via which will invest $50 million in Mexico. It's worth adding that the numerous Mexican reports, media reports that I've read about the subject also tend to mention the ongoing negotiations over the NAFTA agreement, subtly hinting at how Mexico should diversify its trade partners, just in case. One quick issue I want to bring up is tourism. There's not much data I've been able to find about tourism to Latin America and the Caribbean, and I have to thank a Russian friend of mine who used to work in the, tourist, the Russian tourist in industry to help me find some of this information. Uh, I previously mentioned how they're contradicting data when it comes to Cuba and Russia, but there have been other initiatives. For example, when it comes to the Dominican Republic. According to Russia, Russia is now the second largest market for tourism to the DR with over 63,000 visitors in the first quarter of 2017. And Russia is only beaten by Germany, by France, I'm sorry, which has 94,000 visits to the Korean nation. And you can see a screenshot of a, a Russian tourist expo called Leisure 2017 that actually highlights this uh, achievement, saying Russia becomes the second largest tourist source for market for the DR. And it will be interesting to see if other Latin American nations can attract more tourism. I mentioned a moment ago how Colombia is very interested, but also Brazil. As a matter of fact, just last month, Brazil opened a tourist office in Moscow. According to the Brazilian government, the number of Russian tourists to the Portuguese-speaking country went from 13,000 in 2018 to 24,000 in 2016, which explains why Brazil is looking to Russia as a bigger uh, source of, uh, is looking at Russia as a potential source for more tourists and tourist-related revenue. As a final topic in this section, I would like to be at fault. I will be at fault if I did not discuss Russian weapons of sales to Latin America. Indeed, Russia has been trying to sell some of its platforms to new clients with limited success. It's worth noting that Peru, where I'm from by the way, is currently contemplating the acquisition of up to 24 MI-17 helicopters for search and rescue operations, as well as relief support. In recent years, the Indian state has acquired up to 24 helicopters for internal security operations. And now Russia, uh, Peru wants to acquire an big, uh, even bigger fleet. As for other countries, and I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that Russia, Peru, with Russian help, is currently constructing an, an aviation maintenance center for its helicopter fleet in the southern region of Arequipa. As for other countries, Chile held this past December a weapons fair called Expo Naval 2016, and the Russian company, I can, I'm going to watch you this name too, Rosoboron Export, and you can see a uh, a photo of, the, of, their, of their little office they had in the, in the booth that they had in Expo Navarro on the, on the left side, on the left side for you, was present. And it showcased a number of its platforms, including submarines and offshore patrol vessels. I haven't heard any deals for Russian naval platforms in recent months, but it's always a possibility that it could occur. Not so much submarines, but I can see some countries wanting to buy surface platforms. Finally, there have been reports that Argentina wants to sell some of its MiG-29 warplanes to potential customers like Argentina, Peru, and Colombia. Out of three that I've read about, 
Peru is, I think, the, likely, the likeliest candidate. In fact, according to the Peruvian media, just this past August, a delegation of Peruvian Air Force personnel went to Russia to test some of its platforms. Peru does need to replace its fleet of warplanes in the very near future. And since the Peruvian pilots already fly other versions of the MiGs and Sukhois, I do believe there's a good chance that they will purchase MiG-29s. We often regard the Caribbean as only Cuba and the Dominican Republic, when in reality the Caribbean region has plenty of English-speaking nations plus Haiti and Suriname. Unfortunately, I have not been able to find much information about Russia-Caribbean relations. Nevertheless, I was it was important, I felt it was important to discuss this as it provides a complete overview of Russian relations with the Western Hemisphere, not just Spanish-speaking countries. The biggest development occurred in July 2016, when the Russian company UC Rosal sold 100% of its aluminia, of its stakes of aluminia partners of Jamaica, Alpart, a bauxite mining company, to the Chinese, and they were sold to the Chinese industrial group Jiquan Iron and Steel for $299 million. Sadly, I'm not a mining expert, so if anyone knows about Rusal's uh, adventure in Jamaica, we'll definitely not learn, learn, love to know more about it. As for Guyana, back in 2015, Russian and Guyanese authorities signed an agreement via which the professors, lecturers, and the students of the University of Guyana will be able to engage in exchange programs and study in the People's Friendship University of Russia. You can see here a photo of the Russian ambassador Nikolai Smirnov with the Guyanese education minister. In fact, Russia and Guyana have been pushing for people-to-people -people initiatives as also in 2015, the two governments signed a visa-free waiver agreement. As for more recent initiatives, Grenada and Russia also signed a visa-free waiver initiative just this past September during the 72nd United Nations General Assembly. <coughs> Russian, I've also read that in only in a few weeks, apparently in November, the government of Grenada is going to host a conference called New Dawn 2017 and is going to invite renowned Russian journalist Sergei Brilev, anchor of the Russian <coughs> TV channel Rosilla, to attend the forum in Grenada. Grenada also hosts, intends to host a day of Caribbean culture in Russia in 2018 and open up a trade house in Moscow to promote Caribbean goods and services. Finally, it's worth noting that a meeting between Granada's minister Keith Mitchell and the aforementioned Ambassador Nikolai Smirnov took place in January this year. Apart from discussing education scholarship and visa waiver programs, the diplomatic officer reportedly discussed the possibility that Russia could forgive all of Granada's debt. The two countries signed an MOU back in 2015 in via which Russia forgave $266,000 of Russia of Grenada's debt. I'm not sure how much Grenada owes to Russia, but it will be interesting to see if the Russian government continues to forgive the Korean island debt and what this means for bilateral relations. As a final example of Russian Korean relations, just this past June, Sergei Lavrov, Russian Foreign Affairs Minister, met with Prime Minister Roosevelt's Kirill of Dominica in St. Petersburg. And if you have any doubts on whether or not Russian Caribbean nations are eager to improve ties with Russia, I will read you this quote from said meeting. Not only is Dominica keen on advanced relations between the Russian Federation, but also the, Russian, the Caribbean region. I am also here to offer my, my Dominica and myself to serve as the bridge between Russia and the CARICOM countries says Kiro to Lavrov. The Russian media has been in the news lately in the US, if you haven't heard, 
ask you, Washington argues that, that news services like Sputnik and RT are promoting propaganda on behalf of the Russian government. RT and Sputnik News have Spanish language services in Latin America, called RT Spanish or RT Actualidad and Sputnik Mundo. And Spanish also has a Portuguese language service for Brazil, called Sputnik Brazil. And in the interest of transparency, I have been cited and quoted by all these services. How influential RT and Sputnik are in Latin America is difficult to address, since I have not been able to find polls that explain how much viewership they have among, these, among the masses. RT Actualidad actually has a TV channel that can be viewed in Latin America, but you need to have a cable satellite to subscription to receive it. Meanwhile, Sputnik is most more known for its website. Unlike articles about the US, which tends to critique US government policies, the articles I've seen about Latin America are mostly politically neutral, or that from or some that foment correlations between Russia and Latin America. This is, for example, and you can see it on the left side, you can sort of like, you know, squeeze a little bit, a headline for a, of a Spanish article from this past August. The title reads in Spanish, the five Latin American countries that are the most popular among Russian people. And if you're curious about which ones they're talking about, they are Argentina, Brazil, Cuba, Mexico, and Venezuela. And as a Peruvian, I'm slightly offended that Peru is not in that list. Then again, both RT and Spanish have published articles that, tell, that tell you the type of objectives they are advocating. For example, in the screen you can see the title of an RT article from just two days ago, October 9. Trump's, which says, Trump's actions in Latin America are criminal, a quote from former President Dilma Rousseff. While I do not believe RT's ratings are particularly high when it comes to the TV channel itself, I have noticed that Spanish and RT articles, we include, include YouTube videos, do get shared and retweet quite a bit. And the comment sections usually have a fair number of, of posts. So I do believe both news websites have a fair amount of following in Latin America. Finally, I will say that there has been at least one major incident between RT and one Latin American government, namely Argentina. In 2016, the Argentine government, which President Macri now said of state, suspended the RT broadcast via state channels. RT can still be viewed in Argentina via Skype cables or subscription but not through state broadcasts, which was an initiative dating back to the Kirchner-Putin put, Kirchner days. So, what does Russia want? Let me put it like this. I do not think Russia has a grand strategy for Latin America and the Caribbean, like the Alliance for Progress, or the Good Neighbor Policy, or the Monroe Doctrine. But this does mean that even though, there, as we have seen, there are plenty of initiatives that Russia is carrying out in Latin America and the Caribbean, while I do not what I see, and you're welcome to disagree with me, are specific initiatives aimed at certain countries, not towards regions and subregions as a whole. Similarly, I have not heard of declaration that makes me think that there are some, some sort of milestones that Moscow or its Western Hemispheric allies are looking to reach. For example, is it Moscow's goal to double trade Colombia by the end of the decade, or to set a specific number of military platforms, or maybe to get more countries to recognize the separatist regions of South Asia and Abkhazia? Certainly, having friendly commerce is useful. I've already mentioned how Prime Minister of Dominica has offered to serve as a bridge between Moscow and the rest of the Caribbean states. There are also countries like Venezuela that voted in 2016, I believe, with Russia and China to block a resolution in the United Nations Security Council regarding Aleppo, Syria. Additionally, it is certainly in the interest of any global power to have allies passing its immediate borders. And given the ongoing tensions between Washington and Moscow, Having allies in the West Hemisphere helps Russia uh, have a presence in the Western, have a presence in Washington's historical backyard, which serves as a counterweight to the expansion of NATO.
a similar objective in my view is Moscow's promotion of multilateralism. I do believe the Russian government is a support of multilateralism, meaning the Russian regional powers school of geopolitics press away from having one or two hegemons. Hence, it comes as no surprise that the Russian Federation has eagerly supported 10 years ago Venezuela during Hugo Chavez's years, when he was the leader of the ALBA bloc, with countries like Ecuador, Bolivia, Nicaragua, and Cuba as member states. Additionally, the Russian and Brazilian governments came together under the umbrella of the BRICS initiatives, particularly a few years ago, when Brazil was in a place where it could advocate to have a permanent seat in the United Nations Security Council. So yes, Russia is promoting multilateralism, but I think it's obvious that its goal is to promote Moscow-friendly regional powers that contest U.S. hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. Well, with that said, I also would argue that Moscow, Moscow does not want an ally in the Western Hemisphere that can potentially drag Russia into some kind of asymmetric or traditional conflict with the U.S. I'm specifically talking about Venezuela. As President Maduro recently said that Russia and Venezuela have created a military fortress in the South American nation to stop U.S. aggression. Certainly, having friendly nations and friendly ports in the Western Hemisphere is important, and it helps Russia display its strength and military capabilities, such as a 2008 naval exercise between Venezuela and Russia, or the possible exercise between Nicaragua and Russia in the Central American nation in the coming months. And yes, coming back to Venezuela, I am curious for how long can the Russia support the, the Venezuelan government. We have already mentioned how, how Russia has sent weight to the South American state and its essentially imagined its own industry. And it reminds me a bit of the Cold War, when the Soviet Union subsidized Cuba's sugar industry and supported its economy. I also do not believe the Russian government wants to go through this experience again in the long term. Venezuela's, Venezuela's pro-Russia affinity and its all wealth notwithstanding. Okay, we're almost done here. I would be a bad analyst if I did not try to predict the future. And that's what I'm trying to do with the caveat that this will be all short-term predictions, meaning towards for the rest of the year and the and the next one. First of all, we all know that. President Putin is going to go to Bolivia next month, in November, for a summit of the Gas Exporting Countries Forum. Venezuela and Trinidad and Tobago are members, while Peru has observed status. This is President Putin's first ever visit to Bolivia, and I'm guessing he will address Gazprom, the nuclear center that Rosatom is constructing. But my main interest as a defense analyst is whether any sales weapons, sell, weapons sales agreements will be signed, like for the potential warplanes that I mentioned before. I'm not sure which other countries, if any President Putin will visit, but this will be an important role in an important trip. Like, and like all of us here, I'm curious if he will meet again with President Maduro of Venezuela and what, that, what will come out of the meeting. One thing to consider, though, is the future of Russia's current allies in Latin America. And in that sense, things are looking good for Moscow. First of all, certainly Russia, Russia is profiting from increasingly tense Havana, Washington-Havana relations. Which, whether it's President Trump's statements or the, discussion, the decision to remove some of U.S. diplomatic personnel from Havana after that bizarre incident a few months ago in which U.S. diplomats got sick. Cuba is scheduled to have parliamentary election in 2018, which will bring an end to the Castro dynasty. But it would be absurd to believe that the next leader of Cuba will, remain, will not remain cautious towards Washington and maintain some affinity towards Moscow. Meanwhile, in Bolivia, President Morales is trying to change the country's constitution so he can run for re-election once again in 2019, I believe. It's unclear if he will succeed, as there's growing opposition against him. But if he can't change the constitution, and if he does get re-elected, which I think he will, La Paz-Moscow relations will run close. As for Nicaragua, President Ortega was re-elected for a new term last year. 
Hence, we can expect a continuation of closed ties, though I don't think Nicaragua can afford to spend much money on Russian weapons like Venezuela did uh, not long ago. For Venezuela, I really dread making any kind of predictions given the tense situation in the country. But I will say the obvious. Moscow will continue to diplomatic support President Maduro, and is happy to continue managing Venezuela's oil. And I think it will be absurd to believe that Moscow would once regime change in Venezuela, and since that would mean losing such an ally. I will go back to Nicaragua, though, because I do believe that that Central American nation is Moscow's new, newest and close, most stable ally in Latin America and the Caribbean. So we should expect more high-level diplomatic visits, and maybe in low-scale military exercises between the two countries. But I think, but what I think is even more important than Russia's relations with Bolivia, Cuba, Nicaragua, or Venezuela are Russia's relations with everyone else in the hemisphere. As I've tried to explain here, even close US allies like Colombia are want to have at least cordial relations with diplomatic relations with Moscow as well as trade initiatives. And I'm going to try to generalize the foreign policy of most Latin American and Caribbean states, vis-a-vis Russia, by saying that these governments want to diversify their partners, especially their trade partners, without antagonizing Washington, but trying to look for some kind of personal uh, perfect balance. Assuming the, the Russian economy continues to grow, countries like Chile, Peru, and Colombia, and Mexico will want to trade more with Moscow. With that said, I do think there are some initiatives that I don't think will go anywhere. Like the Russian-Argentine project that for a nuclear power plant that, that was signed a couple of years ago when President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner was in power. On the other hand, I do think Peru will purchase more MS-17 helicopters and possibly even MiG-29 uh, warplanes in the near future, maybe next year, depending on Peru's budget, as they are really very reliable platforms and the Peruvian pilots are used to flying them. I do remain skeptical if any Latin American country will purchase Russian submarines, as I think the geopolitics and security landscape of Latin America does, are not ideal for any country to achieve to, to acquire these platforms, Brazil and Colombia notwithstanding. As for Russia's relations with the Caribbean, they will continue to be cordial and invest initiatives like scholarships and visa waiver programs and debt forgiveness can go a long, long way to gain the goodwill of Caribbean countries as we have seen, like in the case of Dominica. So, I thank you for your time, uh, for taking the time of your busy schedule to, to listen to me today and I welcome all questions, comments and all respectful criticisms. Thank you.